Tonight's reading is from the book of Esther, chapter 7, verses 1 through 10, and chapter 9, verses 20 to 22. So the king and Haman went into feast with Queen Esther. And on the second day, as they were drinking wine, the king again said to Esther, What is your petition, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be given me at my petition, and my people at my request. For we are sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be slain, and to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have held my peace, for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, Who is he, and where is he, that would presume to do this? And Esther said, A foe, an enemy, this wicked Haman. Then Haman was in terror before the king and the queen. And the king rose from the feast and wrath and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that evil was determined against him by the king. And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine, as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. And the king said, Will he even assault the queen in my presence, in my own house? As the words left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. Then said Har- Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king, Moreover, the gallows which Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing in Haman's house, fifty cubits high. And the king said, Hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows which he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the anger of the king abated. And Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far, enjoining them that they should keep the 14th day of the month Adar and also the 15th day of the same, year by year, as the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies and as the month that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into a holiday that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days for sending choice portions to one another and gifts to the poor. The word of the Lord. Esther is the only book in the Bible where God is not mentioned, not once, no God. Or if God is here, God is hidden in the background or underneath, down in the crack somewhere. There is no prophet that hears God's voice, who gets a direct message. God has no instructions, no directions, no appearances. The story of Esther takes place after the times when God was all flashy and obvious. This sounds familiar. 
I've not heard God talking lately, or ever. People who do often end up in psychiatric hospitals. We say we hear God's voice in scripture or our neighbor or the poor, but this is a little bit of a different thing than God called Moses and spoke to him from out of the tent. God's not a character in this story. It's a story of Esther, and it's a folktale more than history. Think timeless more than factual. It takes place in the capital of the Persian Empire. The Babylonians had defeated the Israelite kings, and now the Persians have defeated the Babylonian kings, and the Jewish people are scattered all across this enormous empire. And the king of the greatest power the world has ever known, according to the book of Esther, is a silly, pompous, power-hungry buffoon. And as the book opens, he's throwing a party. A party like there's never been a party before. He has special couches made of gold, and so all the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people he's invited can sit on these golden couches and golden goblets for them to drink wine from. He just wants everyone to know how grand and rich he is. It was a party that lasted for 180 days. With more wine than you could ever imagine, lavish food, yachts, swimming pools, entertainment, coke maybe, I don't know. What do you do at a party that lasts six months? I'd be dead after three. But to top off all this glorious debauchery, the king smashed beyond smash says, fetch me my queen. He thinks it would be a great idea to have his queen parade in front of all his guests wearing nothing but her crown so that they can all observe her beauty. Yuck. It's like Don Draper multiplied infinitely. But in an unheard of move, for which the scholars have called her the only radical feminist in the entire Bible, Queen Vashti refuses. Yes. But the king loses his mind from rage. He is unhinged. He's humiliated. So his people step in to try and calm him down. They have an idea to soothe his inflated, juvenile, volatile ego. How about this, they say. We'll gather the most beautiful young virgins from every corner of the empire into a harem, a great big harem, and each night, a different one of them will come into the king. And whichever one the king ends up liking best, she'll be the new queen instead of that Vashti. This does mitigate his rage. And as it so happens, one of the beautiful young virgins that's rounded up for the harem is Esther, an orphan of an exiled Jewish couple who has been raised by her uncle Mordecai. Now before these girls can deign to enter the king's bed, they have to undergo a rigorous beautifying regime. The text says six months with oil and vinegar and then six months with spices and ointments for women. A year of sloughing and moisturizing and being perfumed, rid of any natural fragrance. This is so over the top. 
I don't know if it's infuriating or hilarious. Whether or not every person lived up to them, the Jewish people had guiding principles. They had checks and balances to guard against decadence. They had ideals about feeding the poor. They had purity laws, but they did not have year-long beautifying regimes. To them, the lives of this Persian elite seemed ludicrously decadent. And the book of Esther is making fun of them. It's mocking the empire and the empire's ways. I like that in the book. The people in charge are fools, moronic. The behavior that the empire elicits is absurd. Let yourself be defined by the dominant paradigm you'll be twisted into something farcical. Multiple plastic surgeries, $300 pairs of jeans, reality TV. For some reason, I keep thinking of Donald Trump. This book, and I'm just going to go with a maybe unlikely possibility that it's a woman who wrote it, is mocking powerful men and what they desire. It's mocking the rich, the empire, the goyish. The book is dripping with a sarcastic sense of humor. I really don't think I got that in Sunday school. I don't think Luther got it either, offended by the pagan naughtiness. Why do Christians so rarely seem to see that the Bible is funny? There's a Greek version of Esther which is totally different than the Hebrew version, has a totally different feel. There is no comedy at all. The narrator delivers his grave lessons in a very serious tone. But the Hebrew version is meant to get you laughing at kings, at the sheer absurdity of the human species who seem to be blind to the fact that they are animals who smell and die and defecate. The king's eunuchs, isn't the king's eunuchs just a funny idea? They spend a year moisturizing and perfuming the virgins that they may be fit to come near the king. When at last they are ready to enter the king's chamber or vice versa, that's supposed to be very funny. (laughs) If she doesn't delight him, She's never summoned again. But Esther, the Jewish orphan, succeeds in delighting the king so much so, more than all the other virgins, he is so delighted that he sets the royal crown upon her head. Great. Esther isn't your typical saint. She doesn't conduct herself like someone who is zealous for the law of her people. But she does become a hero to the Jewish people. I kind of like that kind of hero. So Esther, who has never made her Jewish identity known, is suddenly queen of the whole Persian Empire. But now enter the evil villain, Haman. The king's a buffoon. Haman is treacherous. He's a prince in the king's court who, for no particular reason, is suddenly made famous, given the highest place in the kingdom, and the king commands everyone who sees him to bow down before him wherever he goes. 
And most people do it. They do it. Eunuchs and lemmings. But not Mordecai, Esther's uncle. He refuses. This makes Haman so mad that he decides not only to hang Mordecai, but to annihilate every Jew that ever lived. The evil villain casts lots, per is the Persian word, to see what day this slaughter should happen on, and the die lands on the 13th day of the month of Adar. So Haman goes to the king and says, There are these weird people, king, scattered among our people who have strange ways, and they don't even honor the laws of the empire. So he says, It doesn't profit you to tolerate them. So let them be destroyed. It will be better for the empire annihilate what won't accommodate. If it doesn't profit, kill it. So the king, it seems without giving it much thought, sends out a decree to destroy, to slay, to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th month of the 12th, the 13th day of the 12th month. Was there a time when even this seemed like farcical hyperbole? Like a gross impossibility? Like an exaggeration so preposterous as to seem comic? If so, my God, no more. But the king agrees to Haman's outrageous plan. The king doesn't really seem to have a mind of his own. And maybe this is what it means to be the head of an empire. An automaton for the principalities and the powers. But Mordecai learns of the king's decree and he sends an urgent message to Esther. He says, Esther, you've got to help speak to the king. I didn't bow down to Haman and now suddenly all our people are on the brink of annihilation. But Esther is reluctant, actually, because she says... If you go into the king's court without being summoned, you're put to death. The only chance you have if you appear in the king's chamber without being summoned is if he holds out his golden scepter towards you. It's not just me. Academics have remarked on the euphemistic nature of the king's golden scepter. And Esther says, the king hasn't summoned me to his chambers for a whole month, so the golden scepter may not be likely to point in my direction. But Mordecai is adamant. He says, look, Esther, just because you're in the king's palace, you won't escape any more than all the Jews. If you keep silent at such a time as this, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place but you will perish. And who knows, Mordecai says, and these may be the most important words in the whole book, who knows? Maybe you've been put here in this place at this time to subvert the evil machine. He doesn't say he knows for certain It's like God is whispering in his ear to deliver some unambiguous prophetic message. Mordecai doesn't offer Esther any infallible directive from God. He poses a question. Who knows? There's no royal telephone. There's a question. 
Who knows, maybe you are here in this place, in this time, for a reason. So that you might act, do something, take a risk. God is not that obvious. But who knows? Maybe you have a part to play. Forget, for God's sake, the stupid rules of the kingdom. Do something to help your people, yourself, to get free. So Esther, who so far has been a little like some typical beauty queen, submissive, quiet, fine to be intimate with the power if the power chooses her, doing what she can to delight the king, this is the moment where she shifts. She says, I'll go to the king, and if I perish, I perish. I love this moment. It's beautiful. So now, like many other women in Hebrew scriptures who come into their own after men create crises they can't resolve themselves, she acts. But it's not like some saint amidst white blossoms of purity. Not like the Catholic saint Agnes, who is thrown into a brothel where her purity was miraculously preserved. Esther is decidedly not a saint of the nunnish variety. She schemes, she flatters, she goes to the king's chamber, and voila, the golden scepter points in her direction. In fact, the king is so delighted with her that he says, what do you desire, Esther? I'll give you anything you want up to half my kingdom. She says, just come to dinner tomorrow with Haman. In the meantime, Haman has been constructing this, constructing this ridiculously huge scaffold to hang Mordecai on. And he starts bragging to everyone how he's the only person in the whole kingdom that is invited to Esther's banquet table. He is so big, and he is so famous, and he is so special. So he puts on his finest, and he goes to Esther's banquet table, and they all sit down at the table, and they start drinking the wine. And the king is so pleased with Esther again that he says, what do you want? Anything you want. And she says, if I found favor in your sight, let my life be given to me and the life of my people, for we have been sold, sold, bought, and sold to be destroyed, to be slain and annihilated. And the king is all like, what? Who? How has this come about? Who's the man? And where is the man who would presume to do such a thing? Of course, the king himself has been kind of wrapped up in the whole deal. But Esther says he's right here, and she points at Haman, the wicked Haman. And the king is so full of rage that he has the eunuchs take Haman to the gallows that Haman prepared for Mordecai and hangs him. The king gives Mordecai Haman's house and gives Mordecai a place in the court, and the king issues another decree because he has to issue a decree to undo the other decree, calling for annihilation, that on that day that the Jews were to be slaughtered, instead they'll defend themselves. And in fact, they actually do some slaughtering of their own. They kill those who hated them. These stories are so rarely without violence. But so instead of being, instead of being annihilated, the Jews are saved. And Mordecai makes a decree. He says, for all time, from now on, forever, this day, the 15th day of the month of Adar, the Jewish people will celebrate. They were freed instead of being destroyed. They'll celebrate with holiday-making and feasting. They'll send good food to each other and give to the poor. 
They'll celebrate this way on this day when their sorrow is turned to laughter. And the feast day shall be called Purim, after the pur, the lots, the dice that Haman cast. And so it has been celebrated to this day, over the centuries, quite merrily, in the spirit of the book of Esther. It's a sort of a funny feast. Esther is read aloud in the synagogue, and wherever Haman's name is mentioned, which is 54 times, everyone yells, boo, or they rattle special noisemakers prepared for that occasion. Some people write Haman's name on the bottom of their shoes, and they stomp so loud to blot Haman's name out, which was instructed by the ancient rabbis who do have a sense of humor. There's special food for the feast, like these little triangle-shaped pastries filled with poppy seeds called Haman's ears. So everyone eats Haman's ears. Or there's a special loaf of bread called the eyes of Haman, baked in the shape of Haman's head with eyes made of boiled eggs. And one of the most important obligations of the feast day is to eat a festive meal. Don't you love an obligation like that? And not only eat, but drink wine, lots of it. The sages of the ancient Talmud said that people should drink so much wine on Purim that they can't distinguish anymore between the phrases, cursed is Haman and blessed is Mordecai. Later, some rabbis said, maybe after all, you should only drink a little more than usual. But still, you're obliged to drink, laugh have fun, to recognize the comedy. People dress up in costumes as a way of emulating God who disguises her presence, but who was nevertheless among them, quietly, hidden, maybe a little hard to see, but underneath, holding all things. We need to be able to laugh at ourselves, our species, We're so unbelievably absurd so much of the time. Mammals that try so hard spend so much time and money and energy trying to be less human. I mean, of course there are times to be dead serious, but laughing at kings? It's a way of not giving the powerful the power that they so pompously claim. This meal isn't very much like a six-month party for the rich and famous. It's little and humble and basic. It's not really flashy or even obvious. God hidden in a loaf of bread from cub foods, in a glass of grape juice. It points to a God who reveals God's self not in glory but in brokenness. Not in power, but in vulnerability. And who knows? Maybe we are meant to do something with that in this time and in these days. 